everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. I hope you're ready, because man, I am fired up. We got some fun that we are going to have this morning. I cannot, I, since we planned this act series, this has been one of the Sundays I've been so excited about. So buckle up, friends. Um, Stan Lee, uh, by raise of hands, who recognizes the name Stan Lee right out of the gate? Okay, good. That's good enough that we're going to continue with this opener. Stan Lee, for those of you that are like, maybe sounds vaguely familiar, you have no idea. That's fine. Stan Lee is the creator of people like Captain Marvel and Black Panther and Spider-Man. He's a comic book writer. He's a storyteller. And while the world seems to have no shortage of storytellers, Stan Lee over the years has been something of a prodigy. For decades, he has been writing these characters and continuing these, continuing these stories that he's written. And back in the 80s, uh, somebody was doing an interview with him, and they said, Stan, there's so many comic book artists what makes your story so successful? And he had the answer right on the tip of his tongue. He said this, the whole formula, if there is one, I think, was to say, let's assume that somebody really could walk on walls like Spider-Man or turn green and become a monster like the Incredible Hulk. That's a given. We'll accept that. But accepting that, what would that person be like in the real world if he or she existed? Wouldn't they still have to worry about making a living or people distrusting them or having acne or dandruff or their girlfriend or boyfriend jilting them, what are the real problems that people would have? We all know we need a superhero to rescue us from our enemies, from calamities unforeseen, from ourselves, but we simultaneously want this hero to be someone with whom we can identify with. These two instincts are woven into our nature, the knowledge that we need someone to save us and the deep desire for others to understand our struggles. And I think that's what has made my comics so popular. There it is. Superhumans with struggles. That's the formula of how to be a good storyteller if you want to tell stories about superheroes. And that's awesome. There are so many good things in, in just that quote from Stan Lee. And as a disclaimer, as we get a little bit further into our sermon today, I just want you to know I'm, I'm stealing most of this. Uh, this is mostly plagiarized from a teacher who I know, whose name is Marty Solomon, who stole it from his teacher, whose name was Ray Vanderlaan. These may be names that you know, but this is a teaching I've heard multiple times, and every single time it blows my mind and makes my bud, blood pump just that much stronger because I just love it. It's so good. We're supposed to be going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter. And today we're going to cheat just a little bit because last week we were in Acts chapter 5, which means that this week we're in Acts chapter 5. We're going to hit it one more time because it's too good to move past this one thing we couldn't get to last week. And I wanted to catch us up a little bit because I think the context, how we've gotten to where we are now, is so important to keep in mind as we're trying to understand the whole story of the Bible. I think one thing that can make reading Scripture hard for us is when we open our Bible, we'll read one chunk, but sometimes we'll forget, like, oh, this actually belongs in a larger story or in a larger grain of thought take it as a whole package. So here's where we've been so far. We started in this book of Acts with 40 days. 
40 days where Jesus was just with his students. It was like remedial training. I don't know if you've ever had this experience with a person or maybe a class where you get to the end and you go, oh, now that I can see the whole thing, take me all the way back to the beginning. Like, give it to me one more time because now I think I have a container that I can understand what's going on. So the book of Acts begins with 40 days of Jesus and his students where students are going, take me all the way back. And we get kingdom of God 101 from Jesus one more time. I would have loved to have been there. It's the best 40-day class to audit in the history of time. Then we get to Acts 2. And this incredible event happens. We call it Pentecost. Pentecost was really the name of a Jewish celebration that coincides with this particular day where as people were gathered together, these tongues of fire descend, a wind and a smoke fill this room, and the Holy Spirit comes and it starts living inside of human beings. It's, it's mind-blowing. And what we started to see in Acts 2 was that one thing that's going on in the story is that God is moving the location of his temple. It is no longer a brick-and-mortar location, which was amazing as it was. But now he's moving the location of his temple, of his presence, of the things that he does in the world. He's moving that into humans. That's amazing. And we talked about a couple key things, and this will be so important for our time together today. So try and commit as many of these to memory as you can, not just for this morning, but as principles of this is how you're supposed to live. If God's temple has come to be inside of you, this is what God's temple does. It's a place where we experience God's generosity and his healing presence that lives in you. The temple was a place where we're reminding others that God wants to be with them, that he wants to be with us. That's what happens at that physical place. That can happen around you. The temple was a place where forgiveness was offered. It was a place, a location where you could come and you could get clean inside and out, a place where you were just free. That's what happens around these people. They would celebrate what God had given them. This was a place, the temple was a place where you could bring an offering. You could bring what you had been given and just say, hey, I just want to freely give it back as an act of gratitude and as an act of honor. And the temple would be a place where they would take all these different offerings and they would redistribute it so that the folks who were poor and oppressed and marginalized would have what they would need. It was amazing. The temple was a place where you would remember God's story and the story of his people and your story as it fit within all of it. In the temple, there was this place where there was just this rhythm of life. The temple was a place where you would receive from God and respond to God. Receive and respond. Receive and respond. That's what we saw in Acts 2. And now as we've gotten past Acts 2, we're starting to see what it means for that temple to be lived out. In Acts 3, we saw Peter and John, they're walking up to the physical brick-and-mortar temple one day, and they see a man who's had a jacked-up leg since he was born, and they heal him. And for the first time, he stands, and he worships, and he's a part of this community. They restore him. This action of the temple, they're doing it. It's amazing. In Acts 4, we see this group of people. They're, they're not even calling themselves Christians yet. They're just people following Jesus. And they're living generously. They're sharing boldly the story of Jesus. Everything they have, they're just putting together and they're making sure that everybody is taken care of. It's their way of declaring that the reign of a new king and a new kingdom has come and he has a new way of doing things. 
mm, man, this is so cool. And then in Acts 5, last week, we began hitting with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is the first, like, whoopsie in the book of Acts so far that we've seen. These are two folks that as this community is coming together and sharing everything that they have, this couple premeditatively says, we're going to sell this piece of land, we're going to get a fat check, but we're going to cut off some of that check and say that we're giving all of the proceeds, but we're going to keep back some for ourselves. And we saw last week, it was this moment where God, and he has a tendency to do this as he's beginning something new, just wants to make a clear statement of, I will not compromise. There's a job that I have given you to do, and I will not take half effort. We talked about this concept, if you remember the branches, if you were here last week. If you have a branch that's beautiful, flowering, and with leaves, and another one that's a dried up stick, which one is alive? Neither one, if they're not connected to the source. So God is continuing to develop this people, but with these teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God, don't ever forget that they fundamentally begin with Jesus saying, you need to be with me, and I need to be with you if this whole thing's going to work the way it's supposed to. It's a temple. That's what you were designed for. So we're going to catch up today in the verse that literally follows the end of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, these two folks who have died. And it's also a pretty wild verse. And similar to what we did last week, I would love to invite you, if you need to follow along with the words on the screen, of course, do that. However, if you're willing to go with me on this, I would invite you even to the point of closing your eyes. And I want you to imagine the scene. Imagine the physical location where these people are. Imagine what they're wearing, what their faces look like. Who, who else is in the room? I want you to, to just put yourself in the scene. And there's going to be at least one thing that we're going to hit that you're going to be like, what? And hang on to that. Because I think Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, I think he put that in there for a very important reason. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read slowly so that you have time to really imagine and infuse this with your imagination. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. Can you picture that? What are those? With what you know of Scripture and what these folks have been about, what do signs and wonders mean? And what would many of them look like? Imagine being in the room. Imagine hearing another story and another story. Many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Great numbers of both men and women so that they carried even out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. Okay, pause. Men and women. None of the rest dared join them, but God was adding to their number. The sick are being brought out to the street. Can you see it? Can you smell it? Tons of sick people on cots in the Middle East in the middle of the day. It's dusty. It smells like decay, maybe blood. This is a hospital scene. 
And they're doing it because they hope that Peter's shadow would fall on some so that they could be healed. Verse 16. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Another layer. Not just the sick on cots and mats, but people screaming and shrieking, people who are possessed by unclean spirits, and all were cured. And you can almost just go right back up to the top of this section of scripture and just start it all over again. It's cyclical. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. And then they were still together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Great numbers of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Okay, you can open your eyes if you got them closed. Did you catch the one odd detail that's in this story? I hope that it sticks out like a a sore thumb. Let's backtrack through a couple things that just popped out of here. The first thing, they were together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I don't know if you imagine this, the muttering on the outskirts of the crowd and of the scene, but it's it's as if people are saying, I don't know what they're talking about, but man, it's hard to argue. Those folks are doing some good stuff over there. And you hear the murmuring and the critics I love this detail, and it is no small thing that a male Middle Eastern author would point out to you, yet more than ever, believers were added to their number, to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women. This movement, their value of people, the equal worth of men and women for a male author in the Middle East, that is no small detail. These women are an incredibly important part of this community of people. I love that Luke makes a point of making sure that we see that. In the New Testament, we'll continue to see as the story grows from Jerusalem that the role of women is growing uniquely in the biblical story, and we don't want to miss that. There's a connection here between people believing and then more people being helped. It seems like it's this natural outcome of believing in God that more people would be helped. And frankly, we haven't really seen healing like this since, like, Jesus. Like, there would be these stories of Jesus where they'd bring everybody from the towns and everybody would be cured. You don't just see that all that often, and we saw it a lot with Jesus. Jesus walking from the towns for miles, miles around And I think this is one of those places where I would pause, and I wonder if you have the similar thought that I have sometimes as I go about my life. Have you ever thought, like, man, I really wish that Jesus would just hang around. I wish I could go see him. I wish I could talk to him. I wish I could watch a YouTube of him where I could just see his face and watch him teach his own source material. Have you ever had that thought? Peter got to see that. Peter, as this story will continue on, I just love that Peter knew exactly who it was that he was talking about. And I feel like 
the Holy Spirit sometimes for me, and I wonder if Peter ever thought, like, is it some sort of consolation prize? Like, it's second best. You can't have Jesus in the flesh, but you get the Holy Spirit. So it all comes out in the end. I think when I think that way, I often miss that the work of the Holy Spirit, that what God has wanted to do all along is set people loose, me loose, to extend the reign of the kingdom of God. That's my job and that's your job. And he's infused us with his presence, with the ability to do that. Peter's experiencing that here in the story. That power is in me too. And it's available to you. And then we do get this weird detail. We'll see if it's the one that stuck out to you too. If anything offends the Western mind, it's this idea of miraculous healing. And touching somebody, praying over them, healing them that way, I mean, that's pushing the boundaries for us here in the West, right? With this idea of like, they're pulling out cots and mats so that his shadow can pass over them and his shadow can heal them. What's going on with his shadow? Like, it is a weird Groundhog's Day with Peter all the time, apparently. That's weird. Like, that, that should strike, even as a follower of Jesus, as a student of the Bible, that is one of those passages that should just strike you in a way where you go, what am I supposed to do with that? And also, how do I throw my shadow around to be able to do things like that? Like, that's, I, I, that's weird. So what do we do? And this is where, man, buckle up because it's going to start to get real crazy as we look at what is Luke up to with this particular story. We have to remember that Luke, while he is a Greek guy, the writer of the book of Acts, has spent a ton of time around Jewish people. And most of the time, because one of the functions of a temple, which is what these people are all doing together, one of the functions is we, we remember God's story, we remember the story of his people, and we remember our story in it. So Luke would be a guy who would spend most of his nights, instead of binging Netflix, would be talking with other people, hearing from Jewish people, what's the Jewish story of this God who apparently has been with y'all for thousands of years and we're new to the party? And he would have been overwhelmed. And to this day, you can be overwhelmed by the Jewish people's understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament. This was a day and age where even kids by the age of 12 would have most of the Old Testament, at least the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. And those are not the most titillating parts of Scripture. Numbers is hard to memorize. And they had it down. These are the folks that Luke spent time with every day. And particularly at this stage in church history, some of the things that they were most excited to be hearing about, to be rereading and re-understanding, were what did the Old Testament say about Jesus and about the kingdom of God? And then what would come afterwards? They would obsess over that as they were trying to make heads and tails of what are we supposed to do now? What's it supposed to look like? So one of the passages, undoubtedly, that would have been around Luke would have been Isaiah 32. And Isaiah 32 says this. This is a passage of scripture that was written probably 500 years at least before Jesus was around. More like 700, but Isaiah is a weird book to try and date. Hundreds of years before, a prophet said this about what God's kingdom would be like someday. Isaiah wrote, see, a king will reign in righteousness 
and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. This is a passage about what it will be like after God's Messiah comes and God's kingdom is finally here. And if you're Jewish, this is one of the things that you'd look at to know as a proof. Has the Messiah come or not? Is this actually happening? Am I seeing the words of this passage play out? Because if not, the Messiah has not come. And as you've got this little group of Jewish people running around saying, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Any good Jewish person and any good Greek person like Luke who wants to test the metal of that idea is going to come back to passages like this and go, well, are we seeing this happen? Because if this isn't happening, then Scripture is not fulfilled. Then the Messiah has not yet come, and we should keep waiting. What is this passage about? To begin with, and we've got like three layers that we're going to be peeling back here. We're going to start with the pronouns. Let me read just the first two verses to you again and pay attention to the S's. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. How many kings are there in this passage? One. How many rulers are there in this passage? A lot. Multiple rulers. That's weird. Who is the king? Jesus. If we're reading this, understanding that he is the Messiah. Who are the rulers? We are. This is incredible. I want you to begin as we descend into this passage to just put yourself in Luke's mind as he's writing this story. And he's going to be really clear again. What are these rulers supposed to do? This is, these are marching orders from 500 years at least before Jesus. And what does it say? Let me read it to you one more time. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. These rulers, their job, your job, is to rule with justice, to do what is right, to be a people whose cause is justice, often a word assigned to be moving towards those who are oppressed or marginalized or poor or hurting. And what do we seek as we seek that justice? We seek to be shelter from the wind for them. We seek to be a refuge from the storm like water in the desert. We live in a pretty arid climate, especially when Canada chooses to belch all over us. Thanks for that. But it can be kind of deserty here. 
But even the desert in Colorado is a little different from how they would understand the desert in Jerusalem. This is a picture of just some general landscape around, but when you picture desert in the Bible, these are the types of images that are the most helpful to conjure. It's not the Sahara where it's like these rolling dunes and sandstorms. It's like jaggedy cliffs where stuff barely grows. I mean, it's gnarly there. So as Isaiah is writing this passage, he's thinking about this group of people who this is what their life experience is. The lack of justice, this is what that looks like, if you could put it in metaphor. Now the other cool thing about this particular desert is that there are springs of water that pop up all over the place. And there's a spring that's been around for thousands of years now. It's a place that you can actually go visit today. It's an oasis. Um, it's right outside the Dead Sea, but it's a place called Engedi. And this is what it looks like. So you can imagine in a nomadic culture, a lot of shepherding, a lot of stuff like that, that you'd be walking around. I mean, you can feel the tongue in your mouth swell, that cotton mouth feel. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you've got the dust in your eyes. It kind of feels like walking through smoky air outside. You're walking through all these animals you're supposed to take care of, like they're dying in a pile. It's so hot. It's the Middle East. Your family, your kids, your grandparents, everybody's walking together. They're all dying of thirst. And you're going through these rocky canyons, pathways that your family has known for generations and generations. And you know that if you can just get around this final corner, water world. <laughs> it's waiting. And all of a sudden, that cotton taste in your mouth is quenched. And all of a sudden, in the place where you were a little freaked out, what happens if a storm comes up on us? There are trees and shelter here. And if the wind kicks up, we've got rock walls that we can hide behind. This is safe. We have everything that we need if we're here. This is what Isaiah is talking about, that people are supposed to be like. Let's peel back then just one final third layer of what's going on here in Isaiah. Let me read this one more time. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm like streams of water in the desert, in the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Now, I, I think just even with that picture of Engedi, you kind of get this idea of like, man, shadow of a great rock. Yeah, totally, I can appreciate that. It's nice and cool. You're at the base of a waterfall. But there's one other brilliant thing that I think, again, putting yourself in the mind of Luke. Luke is being so careful to do. Whose shadow is it? that people are trying to get people in front of. Do you remember? It's Peter's shadow. What was Peter's nickname that Jesus gave him? The rock. And then the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Those who need a refuge will find it. Those who are thirsty will be quenched. You can almost see Luke as he's finishing this passage, put down his pen and just like, yes, it's happening. 
We've been waiting for 500 years for God's kingdom to come, for the Messiah to be here. And this is how we would know if it was true or not. And he's reading Isaiah 32 and looking at the story that he's hearing from all these people who were there, who saw it. He's saying, it's here. It's true. God's kingdom has arrived. And you can almost, like, I feel it now, this frantic, like, we got to get to work. We got to get to work. There's stuff to do. What are we supposed to do? Let's go be refuge. Let's, let's go. We've got very clear marching orders. Man, I just love, I love this. It's so much fun. So often we read scripture and we see all the ways that it talks about Jesus, particularly when we read the Old Testament as it's looking ahead. Did you know that the Old Testament talks about you? That God has been seeing you coming for a long time and he's had a job for you to do since before you were born? You are the fulfillment of this prophecy today. This prophecy. And as we continue to see God's heart, not just in and after the person of Jesus, but extending back hundreds and thousands of years, this has always been his mission. This has always been his kingdom. We have always been intended for a life like that. It's awesome. And can you believe that you're invited to be a part of something this good? You are. I am. We have a seat at the table to get to live out this story. No matter what you have, no matter who you are, he's designed you to live this kind of life, this life of justice, to be shade, to be a refuge, to be a shelter. This is life to the full. So what does it mean to be shade and shelter? I have been so intimidated to teach out of the book of Acts because of how amazing this is. These miracles happen. How are we supposed to understand that in the world of today? Tongues of fire are descending. What does that look like in 2023? But do you see the work of the people? Who brought the folks to be healed? And was it Peter healing? Or was it God healing through Peter? we really just see an obedient people doing what God told them to do. Some really do have the power to heal. I want to make no apologies for the fact that I do believe it is literally Peter's shadow that is healing people. I just think the point of that to both God and to Luke is that it was a signal that his kingdom had come. But man, some just love to share the story. That's what they bring. Some have this incredible gift of bringing compassion to be, be with the sick. Some of these folks are wildly generous. All are functioning like the temple of God, and that is a miracle. God being in our midst, that is a miracle. So the real wonder here is not only that these things that we deem as miracles are here, but also that the things that we'd maybe consider more pedestrian, those are also here. And those, maybe even most importantly, are the acts of what temples are supposed to do. We do not want to downplay one for the other. Don't tell me that giving generously isn't a miracle especially when it's a sacrificial giving that is compelled by faith in the joy of the kingdom of God. And it's not just a miracle to, for, for the people receiving it. It does wonders for the person giving it. 
Don't tell me that Ryan Maloney or anybody who works in our student ministry downstairs giving their time and their lives away as a volunteer isn't a miracle. They are shelter and shade to some of the most in need of receiving it. And it's beautiful, particularly when it's compelled by a faith and a joy in the kingdom of God. And it's not just a miracle for the kids receiving it. It does wonders for those giving their time in their own relationship with God. Don't tell me that volunteers who show up for nightlights or Hope Kids events to create time and space for parents and families to rest and relax and enjoy and laugh and engage. Don't tell me that isn't a miracle. That that isn't healing. Especially when it's compelled by a faith and a joy in the kingdom of God. And it's not just a miracle for the kids and the families receiving it. It's life changing to be a volunteer in those spaces. And don't tell me that even the amazing miracles that happen in scripture aren't also happening here at Discovery. Do you know the book of Acts is recorded over the span of about 30 years? Don't tell me that in 30 years from now we wouldn't have our own handful of stories of people who have been healed or of homes that have been restored, or of death turning to life. There are miracles happening where there are those compelled by the faith and the joy in the kingdom of God. The world is in far less need of people who swing from webs or who channel all the wonderful powers of ants and wasps, as Stan Lee would have us believe. What draws us to heroes is that they're people, but people choosing to do the good. People with acne and people who have disagreements with their friends, but people who live selflessly. And as followers of Jesus, we simply believe that we can attribute the source of all good to the God of the universe. That the only way we know what is good so that we can choose the good is to look to God, who in his own kindness put on flesh and acne, and dandruff, and walked amongst us, and not only told us how to do it, but showed us as a human being how to be fully human. Even if you do not call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is perhaps one of the best reasons I can give you to know that he's real, and that what he says is true. That when you do what God asks, it feels more alive. That there is a rightness to it. You may be thinking, well, sure, doing good things for others feels good no matter what you believe, and you're right, but why? Why do we all feel that way? It's this universal experience. If life is based on survival of the fittest, why does helping the hurting feel so right, so just? God is the only explanation for something like that, something beyond this physical world. So what do we do? with a teaching like this today. I'm going to invite you. You can choose your level of depth with what you're ready for next when it comes to living out Isaiah 32 through Acts 5 and the kingdom of God alive in the world around us. One thing I think that's for all of us, I think that sometimes we're so quick to consider how we can be shade and shelter for others that we forget to consider that we're in need of it ourselves I don't know about you, man, but I, I think I qualify as my harshest critic in the world. I am so quick to consider all that I am not instead of considering all that I am. Have you given space to yourself 
today or this week to simply enjoy God as he enjoys you. To enjoy the life you have. To hear the kind of things that he says and believes and to believe that those things are true and good about yourself. Maybe you begin living out the kingdom of heaven and you're calling by addressing the person in the mirror and learning better what it means to flesh out God's most important command to love your neighbor as you love yourself, by actually loving yourself, by allowing yourself as a temple to better receive before you respond. Here's an easy one. We're looking for folks this summer to volunteer two to three times to be down in our children's ministry. It offers a cool breeze, refuge, shade, not only to the kids that you can love on, but to the volunteers that are with those kiddos all throughout the school year. Two to three times this summer. You can do it one service and still make it up here for the second one. That's easy. Here's another easy one. In a minute, we're going to stand and sing together. And you have my permission to bust out your phone while we're worshiping and send a quick text to two or three folks who you just know need a little bit of love to let them know that you're rooting for them that you see the desert that they're in and that it matters to you that they don't stay there. Be shelter and shade to those who need it around. Here's one that's like medium. Consider a person that you need or should take to a coffee or to a beer, somebody who you know that needs it, and just love on them. Maybe plan a second time to go out together too. Just listen. Ask them about their life. Ask them about their desert and listen. And if the moment is right, maybe you offer to pray. And if the opportunity is there, maybe there's something for you to do for them. And maybe here's something that's harder. What would it be like to get involved in a ministry, to give your life away? Every single one of our local partners is looking for help. They need more volunteers more folks to get involved in what they're doing. What would it be like to say, you know what, it's time. I need to get involved in something. I want to give back. I've been given so much. Maybe it's time to get involved with one of them. Maybe it's one of our global partners, one of the uh, ways that we engage the globe. This fall, we have a group that's getting ready to go to Albania to go love on some college kids that are out there. Maybe you jump in on that and get some more information. We have a pilgrimage going to Tulsa this, this fall also to learn about what is, how is racism in America? How has this happened? And, and what do we do? How do we engage that from Broomfield, Colorado? Maybe that's a trip that you look at jumping into. And then there's so many extracurriculars. I have um, some friends, Christian and Evelyn, some of my favorite people. Evelyn is this high-powered businesswoman, a professional career in HR. She spends hours every week with a group called Thrive. And Thrive, all they do is help people who are looking for jobs brush up their resume and learn resume skills. And they do mock interviews. And for Evelyn, she would say, look, this is just what I'm good at. This is what I know. This is how I know I can help the world. And I just found an outlet where I can do that for people for free. Refuge and shelter and shade. Christian, her husband, man, what a guy. He loves working with his hands. He works with a group called Be the Gift. And their whole thing is we just come alongside single moms whose houses they're trying to maintain, but they, they can or don't know how or it's too much. And we'll go in for free and we'll fix a sink, put a new roof on. I'm just a guy who likes fixing stuff. And I, and I just know I can do this for free. I can love the world around shade and refuge and shelter. It's beautiful. 
What are you called to do? What's your story? What has God given you and gifted you? And how do you turn around and offer that back to a world that is walking through the desert? Let me bring out the band as I share just a couple of closing thoughts. Should you give what you have? Absolutely. Financially, absolutely. Time, absolutely. Talent, that's why you were given it. But first, lest we be convinced that this is an act of privilege, that we are taking something we have to a world that doesn't have it, that's actually not how this works. In being obedient to live the life God designed us for, it's in giving that we receive. It's in forgiving that we find forgiveness. It's in dying to ourselves that we find life. There is a reciprocity to this. Engaging God's kingdom this way is not merely an act of giving. Remember the rhythm of the temple? Receive and respond. Receive and respond. And when you act like a temple, this is a posture that it teaches you. And second, while life has been pretty amazing so far in Acts, we'll begin to see in the chapters that are to come that if you live this obedient life, if you seek justice, if you want to provide the functions of a temple in the way that you live, when you give shade and shelter and refuge and justice, expect it to get hard. Jesus had always taught that following him would be so hard. We're about to see that happen in Acts. In the chapters that are to come, we have continued to see over these first five chapters the gathering of these people, these amazing things, this justice and the shade and this refuge being set loose in the world. And now we are going to see that there is another force at play in this story. It is a force of darkness that does not want justice to prevail. And it is a force that is alive in our world today. And if you're going to make it, as somebody who not just reads this story but lives it out, the stories that are to come will have to provide some jet fuel for you to push through when the world fights back and says the beautiful things that you do, we will punish you for it. Keep coming back. Keep hearing the story. Continue to learn what it means to be a temple, not just as an individual person, but as a part of a community that gather together to be this temple together. And we'll continue to learn more of this kingdom of God and what it was supposed to be. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are a king and you reign in righteousness. Everything you do is right and good and true and beautiful. And I love that for hundreds of years you've seen us coming, that there's been something to do. I love Luke's brilliant excitement as he sees all of these things converging together. Let us be a people worthy of that kind of a word, that this would be a place where we would gather together and that each one of us will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. We honor you. We want to know you. We want to be a part of that. 
So to that end, we will continue to gather and remember the story and seek to do what is right because that's what you told us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.